Welcome to Postwave. I'm Trevor. This is Eric. So today we're going to be talking about this book, Doing Good Better by Will McCaskill. And I'm really excited for this conversation because this book has had a pretty big impact on me over the past uh, year, year and a half or so. Yeah, I can tell based on, on some of our previous discussions. Yeah, yeah. It's something I think about basically every day. <laughs> Wow. In one way or another. I can see why, having read this book, that it makes me at least think that it's something that I should think about every day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I actually will. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll find out, I guess. <laughs> Just to note, as always, that we're two music teachers who like to talk about a bunch of highfalutin topics that are sometimes slightly beyond us. So if we make any mistakes, uh, please send us a nice email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com and uh, let us know what we got wrong and how we can fix it. Uh, We always love to learn new things. Thanks. This is something we we discussed on, I think, at least one or two episodes at this point. But about about this time last year, a little before that, there was kind of a a run-up to it of a a few months or a year or so. I had this uh, existential crisis about what I was doing with my life and and making art and having a career in art. And this book was definitely one of the things, if not the main thing that precipitated that. Uh, It just made me everything that I'd kind of been told about following your passion and the value of of your contribution to the world and how certain you can be that you're actually figuring out accurately how to best help the world. Yeah, so it centers around this idea he calls effective altruism. Could you explain that for us? Yeah, so this, this movement has really blown up in the past, I don't know, how long not not that it hasn't been around for too too long but um it was it has its roots kind of far back though so this kind of whole thing started with peter singer who's this philosopher who who's known for a bunch of other things including effective altruism but uh, one of those things being the the vegan animal rights movement he has this big book animal liberation which i think was one of his first big uh breakthrough works that uh is basically the, one of the founding founding texts of, of veganism and kind of hardcore animal, animal rights activism. Um, so you wonder who you got that from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, Eric and I will have, have a close uh, composer friend from undergrad at CU uh, uh, who is a, a hardcore vegan activist. And uh, I believe that's pretty much all he does now <laughs> or like the main thing he does yeah. for work. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Aiden Cook, he probably doesn't mind us saying his name. <laughs> no, I mean, he's yeah. he's been in the, the yeah. news yeah. tackling uh, Kamala Harris. No, he, no, he didn't actually do that. <laughs> <laughs> he, he grab- <laughs> That's what the news said he did. Um, he, didn't he grab the microphone of the Kamala Harris? That's right. I totally yeah. forgot about that. 
<laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I, I guess I hadn't thought about that since she became the vice presidential nominee. <laughs> you know, I hadn't thought about that either. That's a little crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, wow. <laughs> anyway, so so it all kind of started with Peter Singer, but most recently the, the guy who's been one of the big faces on it has been Will McCaskill, who's the author of this book. And he's a philosopher from the UK. And one of the main things he's done besides writing books like this and essays and, and all that stuff is uh, he started this organization, 80,000 hours that, that provides a framework for people to, to think about their careers and their lives in this way. And just puts hours and hours and hours of research into into try, trying to determine the the best way to have the impact that you want. Why is that called eighty thousand hours? Because uh, that's that's the average amount of time that you put into a career if you stick with it through your whole life. And so, so what is effective altruism? Right. So it's it's basically so if you break it down, altruism is just you know want, wanting to kind of put the needs of others before your own right uh yeah yeah although uh put a pin in that because he i i remember from the book he defines it slightly different oh yeah uh yeah. let's see do you want to maybe maybe sure, I, can elaborate. I mean he, uh he, he just uh specifies that it doesn't necessarily have to be putting someone else in front of you just it means that you want to help other people right right yeah that, that makes sense and i i could see how it could have kind of kind of that other connotation if, if people weren't uh yeah weren't, weren't told otherwise um i feel like it does kind of have the implication of putting others needs before your own in the sense that part of the idea is to go without kind of the finer pleasures of life or kind of extraneous purchases that you wouldn't mm. necessarily have to have. So you're supposed to put others' needs above those kinds of like frivolous needs that you might have. I see. So so this, uh, I think, touches on the core question about effective altruism for me, which is where do you draw that cutoff? You know, what needs are important enough to say that this, this matters in a life and what is frivolous? Yeah, and no, I think that's a really, it's a really good question. How do you even begin to measure? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think, I think that's that's. It's interesting because he spends a lot of time in the book talking about how to measure, you know, the effects of certain, like charitable contributions and 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 kind of interventions and how they could change people's uh, lives based on measures like quality of life years or quality adjusted life years qualies, I think is, is the right acronym. Um, mm -hmm. But he, there's lots of metrics for that, but there's not really a metric of like, how essential is this thing, <laughs> you yeah. know, to, to a happy life. Um, mm. I mean, I think, I think uh, it kind of maybe comes down to this idea of, of marginal improvement. Like if you buy a really fancy sports car, you think it's doing a lot, but in comparison to how happy it's making you compared to, you know, another car, it's probably not worth the extra, you know, fifty thousand, seventy thousand dollars that you're spending 
Like it might, it mm. might seem that way to you. Um, I mean, I think I, I definitely wouldn't extend it to, I mean, something like eating out at, at a nice restaurant every once in a while, that kind of thing. Hmm. Or, <laughs> you know, going out to see live music, that kind of thing. Yeah, I guess that's an interesting question then is based on what metrics, though, is, is that a fair cutoff? Because some, something about that seems very reasonable and intuitive to me um, as as being someone who those sort of luxuries I could afford, but to me, buying a, an expensive car seems like a frivolous waste. Um, and so I can justify, well, the smaller, the smaller luxuries like going out to a nice restaurant are things that I can uh, afford, and it's not that big a deal, right? Um, but one of the major points uh, in this book is talks about the hundred times multiplier mm -hmm. can you describe that for us yeah yeah so that's that's the idea that in, in especially in developing countries your money will go so so much further than it would go here uh one because of the exchange rates but two also because uh improvement in in quality of life goes proportionally by income you giving them five thousand dollars is gonna you know double their level of happiness more or less um hmm. even if it doesn't double it'll do as much for them as it would do for you uh if you're making you know thirty five thousand dollars a year it would be the equivalent of you making you know seventy thousand and that would just be hmm. life-changing like holy shit like I, i'm moving up and <laughs> it's everything is is uh less stressful now and so, yeah. So that's 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 basically the hundred x multiplier. Yeah. So it's this trend, right, where it just happens to be about a hundred, uh, where your money will go a hundred times further, and it, ha it kind of shows up in a lot of places. Um, so for for you going out to a nice restaurant, and maybe you spend what fifty bucks, um, to to you that seems like uh, a reasonable expenditure for your lifestyle. I mean, you're not being super frivolous. You just do it every, every once in a while. Mm -hmm. But 50 bucks would be, what, the equivalent of 5,000 bucks uh, difference you could make? Right, right. <laughs> for someone else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think it's... Well, yeah. that, that's definitely a simplification. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, let's let's bring some actual numbers in. What what were some of the most effective ways he recommended you could spend your money to help people? So I know off the top of my head, I know a big one is malarial bed nets. Mm. There, there's lots of like simple medical intervention inter interventions that will very reliably save huge numbers of lives on average. Um, I know another one is is in treatment for intestinal worms. Yeah, which is a problem we don't really have to ever think about in in the U.S., but it's a, especially in Africa, it's a huge problem. Yeah, right, because it's so cheap to fix that problem that we already fixed it for ourselves. Mm -hmm. But so let, let's find the numbers. How far does fifty go in terms of say treating? gut worms 
I mean, he does kind of say the thing I was, he says exactly what I was saying about if you double the income, it's always the, it's always the same increase in, in reported happiness, but you're looking for something yeah. more concrete than Depending that. On. Yeah. Well, well, I just wanted to know, like, cause, cause there is very, there are very robust data about exactly how much you can help people by uh, donating to cure gut worms. Okay, so actually, so this is actually a really interesting thing because the it's one of those things where the effects go way further than you would you would think. Mm-hmm. So what he says is that the one of the huge impacts was that it cured absenteeism, not cured it, but made in, the problem in school. Yeah, it made that problem so much less. Um, so he said, absenteeism is a chronic problem in schools in Kenya, and deworming reduced it by twenty five percent. In fact, every child treated spent an extra two weeks in school, and every $100 spent on the program provided a total of 10 years of additional school attendance among the students. Enabling a child to spend an extra day in school therefore cost just five cents. It wasn't merely that deworming children worked at getting children into school. It worked incredibly well. Wow. Okay, so you could go out to dinner for 50 bucks, or you could... What put a uh, hundred or thousand kids in school for a day? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 ridiculous. Yeah, and as as I was saying those examples, I mean the music one obviously I've been wrestling with, but somehow I'm comfortable with with the idea of of going out to one of those meals, you know, like once a year or, or a couple times a year. But like those places existing is something I'm less comfortable with. <laughs> Uh, you know. places where you can spend that kind of money yeah yeah where just the the yeah to just, eat. yeah yeah the fact that we have a culture that's built so much around decadence and indulgence and uh and selfishness right it's it's th- thinking about treating yourself as opposed to how your actions affect the world yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's. Well, are you talking about people who go to those restaurants or the people who are running and owning those restaurants? All of it, the whole, the whole culture that's it kind of glorifies being rich. I mean that I, I think that culture is more prevalent in certain areas of the country and others. I think it's especially prevalent in big cities like New York, where it's kind of like a dog eat dog world where if you don't have money you're not considered to have value mm-hmm. yeah which is kind of ironic given the cities are also like the largest concentrations of of poverty i would imagine mm. in the country too yeah yeah i mean because i the reason i asked is because i feel like a lot of people who run those restaurants probably have the, the genuine desire to to just enhance people's lives and and you know give other people wonderful experiences and that kind of thing but mm-hmm. it is kind of all all wrapped up in the same focus on just material material pleasure and you know benefiting oneself and that that kind of thing and mm-hmm. decadence for the sake of decadence yeah do you know how restaurants came into being i don't it stemmed, as I understand it, from France at the time of the revolution, 
where you had this highly decadent society, free revolution, uh, and suddenly a revolution happened and there's a lot of cooks who have this skill set and are now unemployed mm -hmm. and so they put their services to the general public with the you know the kind of the marketing tagline of eat like a king for a day mm -hmm. right <laughs> this is the, the the chef that has been cooking for the king mm -hmm. or the person who studied under him and now you can eat that food yeah well that's that's wild I mean, I'm sure there were restaurants before that, but are kind of modern, you know. Yeah, the sit-down dining sort of deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and specifically, like, like really, really fancy, if you want mm -hmm. really, really fancy. So, so I can see that, that you could make a case that even just going out to eat is a decadence that you can't really justify. I don't think that that's the only way to look at it, but I think you can make a case for that. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, there, there is just the question of how far down the rabbit hole you want to go. Because as I mentioned, Peter Singer would say you should, you should go as far as that it's actually harming you if you're not if you're giving you know one dollar more to charity, <laughs> then you know, like basically you have to you have to get down to the level where. Uh, you're basically just just creeping by hmm. and that that's i think uh, a question i mean it it seems a little i want to say or I, I, <laughs> I hesitate to say preachy because on one hand it seems like a there's definitely a good case for that but on the other hand it's like but who are you to tell other people how they should spend their money? How, how, what sacrifices they should make? Uh, but, but why do you think that? Why do I think? Why, why do you think it's inherently bad to tell people other, tell other people how to spend their money? Hmm. Because it's my money, <laughs> <laughs> not theirs. <laughs> if it were theirs, they could spend it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, <laughs> not not that capitalism is all bad, but I feel like that's a very capitalist perspective. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It very much is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there's value in sharing your ideas and uh, and and making suggestions about how you think it would be good for people who have certain desires toward helping people that they can do so more effectively if they follow certain guidelines but I think it's something different entirely to go and say you should do this you owe this to the world mm -hmm. I mean yeah because because the the implication is kind of you're a bad person if you don't you should feel bad <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which I don't see as productive because it's so, I mean, in a certain way, it, it, it's judgmental in in a way that alienates people and puts them down. And I think if you have more 
empathy, then you can see the the other person's point of view. Um, and if you have more empathy, you can see the person who's maybe making what you'd call a selfish decision, and you can see the honesty and innocence in that. Mm -hmm. Although I think we have, we have to distinguish from we have to distinguish two kinds of of people that you're trying to convince and w one kind is is someone who has this genuine desire to impact the world in a positive way mm -hmm. but they're just skeptical that that donating that much of their money is a good way to do it mm -hmm. and then there's the other kind of person who denies that that's even a goal that you should have or that it's a worthwhile goal hmm and I feel like a person who genuinely wants to impact the world in as positive a way as possible is someone that that should be more receptive to that kind of argument and that you shouldn't feel bad for for uh, trying to convince them, as long as you do it in the right way and aren't condescending or, you know, any of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, I think a lot of the key for having effective dialogue about these sort of things is to not come off in the slightest bit uh, preachy or uh, taking the angle of, I think you should do this, but rather than, rather just showing how it can be an effective means of, of helping and letting other people make their own decisions about whether they want to do that or not. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in the end, that's that's probably a pretty fine distinction more in just the way you frame things and, and how you how you word things. Because I feel like the, the information is going to be the same. There's, there's just not going to be that final punch of, you should do this. <laughs> if you don't, you're, you know, you're bad. Um, I feel like the like it's like ninety nine percent overlap between the two, the two things. You know, I think you're right. It's a super fine distinction, but I think that distinction is actually hugely important because I've been on the receiving end of people trying to convince me of certain things, like for example, ethical like veganism, and as as just a person who had not considered those points before having the information presented to me was valuable but having it presented in a way that felt preachy that felt do this or else you're not worthy of my time or or it, not, not that that was ever explicitly said just almost kind of tacitly implied but still, that, that extra little kick didn't kick me over the edge. That kicked me back. That gave me a huge amount of resistance to accept it, despite the evidence being presented. Yeah, yeah, because it, it's very easy to just have people put up a wall almost immediately if they decide mm -hmm. that they don't like how someone is, is talking or if that's all they end up focusing on. So yeah, I, I agree. But even though it might be a small distinction, it's it's definitely really really important because otherwise none of none of the other stuff gets through. Mm -hmm. So, with that in mind, K 
here are some ideas from this book that we find interesting and could be valuable for you all to <laughs> hear as well. Yeah. <laughs> if you so choose. <laughs> yeah, hopefully hopefully we got all the the equivocating about not sounding preachy in before <laughs> any actual preachy yeah. sounding stuff. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> now we can preach away yeah <laughs> although i mean i to be honest read this book uh or at least the part of it we're talking about today last night i'm still i'm still sort of deciding how this is going to percolate into my life mm-hmm. or, or it, it's yet to be determined mm-hmm but I definitely think there's some really valuable ideas in here. Yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah, it, it definitely takes a long time to digest. I think. Mm-hmm. So, did you I get sp- did you get through all of part one? Or I did. Yes. Cool. Okay, so I think a really good, I think a really good way to frame this is this famous thought experiment that Peter Singer came up with in the '70s. He had this article called famine affluence and morality and in it he he um he comes up with this this thought experiment which is that you're walking along and you see this child drowning in a shallow pond that would be like trivial for you to save them from imagine it's like you know two inches of water or something like that um and uh but you're wearing a fancy expensive suit. So you, you hesitate about whether to, to help them because you're going to get your suit. You know, you're going to get your suit wet <laughs> and it's going <laughs> to, or your shoes, you know? Um, <laughs> um, and oh, I don't know why <laughs> after thinking about this for a long t- time, I don't know why this has never occurred to me, but I mean, it's silly, but why don't you just like strip off all your clothes and, and, <laughs> i think you're ducking around the yeah, point of the... yeah <laughs> anyway um... <laughs> um why don't you just strip off all your clothes and run toward a child <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> but the big questions in philosophy <laughs> um yeah. Anyway, so that, that's 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 basically it, and and so so people would have maybe two objections two objections to that being an analogy for donating the right amount of money to the right places in the world or trying to have a direct impact through your career. And the first thing is that you're not directly there in front of the person who's suffering. There, in most cases at least on the other side of the city, if not on the other side of the world. And so they're not directly there. And there, there are other people who are way more, not way more stressed. There are other people who are also in distress that are, that are maybe even closer to you. The other one would be that there, you know, it's not just you. There are a bunch of other people that are also there that could also help. And so the burden is, is not necessarily on you to, to save whoever it is that's that's suffering although i th- i think the the latter point maybe doesn't hold water will mccoskill has this thing that he says where it's 
it may feel like you're putting a drop in a bucket, but it's not the size of the bucket that matters. It's the size of the drop. Right, right. Which every single person has the ability to make the world uh, or the lives of other people a better place, regardless of if anyone else is doing it. Right, right. And and Peter Singer has a pretty uh, direct argument against it as well that that's little more philosophical sounding and, and convoluted but um we'll, we'll post a oh, link good. to the what on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> well we'll post a link to the, the the full article so you can you can read it so yeah I, I feel like that that thought experiment frames the thinking in a really clear way so it seems to me like we have two different camps here among the effective altruists we have the singer group who says spend every penny live destitute uh, then we have McCaskill's group where he says, do what you can, help a bit, maybe help more if you like it. He suggests people donating 10% of their income towards these highly effective ways of helping other people. He shares an example of a doctor who decided to find employment that is uh gives him the most money so that he can donate more money and who donates 10%, but sometimes up to 50% of their income. Yeah. Yeah. And I forget if he talks about this in the book, but something people talk about a lot on 80,000 hours is that whatever high impact job you think would be good for you to do, there's a probability that you could, if you get a really high paying job, you could fund like five other people doing that job especially if it's something where that's not very well paid and there's a lot of people who want to do it yeah and there's not a lot of you know monetary resources to pay people to do it mm-hmm. if you if you were just able to fund those positions then you could you could have you know multiple times the impact you would have actually doing that job so that's really interesting i think we have here a situation where capitalism and altruism are kind of going hand in hand, right? You have opportunities to make more money yourself and the, and the better off you are yourself, the greater impact you can have to help people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, th- this whole whole thing is kind of rooted in, or it, it like assumes a capitalist system, which is actually uh, a criticism people will, will lob against it, that it's kind of, it's it's uh it's not really solving the problem like the the root problem which is which is capitalism and mm. the fact that we're just so much the the basically that there's so much wealth imbalance that like that's that's the real problem and and if we if we could solve that some other way then maybe this would be necessary but i i think you know like i said i i don't think capitalism is totally wrong headed and Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe this is the way to to kind of remedy a lot of the the bad outcomes. Yeah, I'm with you on capitalism. I think that as any social economic system, it can get wildly out of proportion, but it has its merits as well. Yeah, I mean, I think we should have some kind of capitalism, but also universal health insurance and UBI. You're saying you're a socialist, Trevor? (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I don't I, even call me bastard. <laughs> I don't know if universal health insurance and universal basic income necessarily imply socialism, but <laughs> no, I, I I'm totally open to those ideas. I think there's definitely a lot of possibility there. So a lot a lot of these arguments I feel I feel like can seem overly simplistic and direct and and you're kind of get responses to say oh it can't possibly be that simple and you mm. kind of get the image in your head of of the celebrity on tv you know in like the infomercial just telling you you know donate to save the children you, you only need you know a dollar per day or something and i think i think i think that can kind of be used to to brush away the the seriousness and weight of of the actual arguments that are that are presented but mm. but the thing that that i keep going back to is just how uh extreme and unusual our position in the u.s in 2020 is compared to the entirety of human history of you know tens of thousands of years and that our our power to actually help large amounts of people is just so so concentrated and we're you know we're in the the 90 top one percent of of global income like we are the the aristocracy <laughs> i i was pretty surprised when uh, he he showed that graph which shows the income over the whole world and if you were making it was it fifty two thousand dollars per year then you are in the one percent of the world population and my first thought when reading that it was oh well, but what about uh what about how expenses are so much higher in the u.s and in developed countries than in developing and then he goes on to say oh no we're we accounted for that already uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> And it's like to even show a meaningful graph, the the part, uh, it's probably like the, the 0.1%, but it's just like, it would be like 20 times the the height of the book to even show what the graph would look like, right? <laughs> More than 20, it, it was like... Uh, <laughs> or like a building. Hi, higher, <laughs> higher than the skyscraper, high, higher than Godzilla. Right, what, right. What was it? That's higher right. <laughs> than the original Godzilla. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just that's crazy. Yeah, so why are we fucking toiling our asses off here, donating ten percent of our income that we need for like not too unbasic necessities when fucking Jeff Bezos could do all of this for us and not even notice it? Yeah, and again, I think that's kind of the same argument about argument about capitalism, which I I'm sympathetic to, that that maybe maybe people who are just making, you know, kind of middle of the road incomes, even if it's kind of above average, like maybe those people aren't the problem, but I think given the chance that that trying to persuade people like him, who aren't donating like significant amounts to to philanthropy considering that that's probably almost a lost cause not that you should should you know try to do it but just accept big daddy big daddy's right. law 
Big Daddy always gets what he wants. Mm-hmm. How it should be. <laughs> so, someday when we're famous and we have like 200 episodes, there will be like a Big Daddy super cut. Or <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just us saying like Big Daddy, Big Daddy, Big Daddy, Big Daddy. Yeah. Big Daddy. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's like five more of them. <laughs> so fucking dumb. So here's a question. Should we be trying to help people who are not well off at all? Isn't it? Okay, so this is a question that I feel like imperialism has been asking slash hedging a particular answer toward uh, for all of history. You know, we have any point in history that you have an empire or a large body of people, you have a wealth disparity, you have a class system, you have people on the very top who are way better off than people who are lower down on the uh, uh, who, who are supporting them and what imperialism seems to be saying by its existence is at least it's trying to say it's better to have a few people who have everything than to have everyone the same but everyone very slightly better off because after all a peasant is gonna suffer even if that peasant uh you can help them a little bit make them suffer a little bit less isn't the world a better off place if there's someone who doesn't have to suffer at all yeah so you're talking about kind of the like the huge inequality of imperial, Im, the huge inequality of imperialism, not necessarily the like conquering other other places. Yeah, exactly. Of imperialism. Yeah, yeah. I guess maybe may, maybe imperialism isn't the right word. Classism, class class based societies. Yeah, I mean it's not nec- it's not exactly feudalism. I guess that you're talking about. Yeah, not exactly, but but it, it is that element of of imperialism and feudalism that I, that I've just described. Yeah, yeah, clear class divisions. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, uh, and part of what goes into that is the assumption that everyone deserves their station in life, that they they got there through hard work or lack of hard work. Mm. You know, and especially in the U.S. because we have this. We have this idea of the American dream. If you know, if you just if you just work hard and you know keep your head down, you will move up in the world and you'll be able to improve your life and your children's lives. Um, mm. And as we have, especially we have this idea of if you get a four year college degree, then that's kind of your ticket to to moving up. Mm. And both both of those things are are not really true. You're right. I think that's a convenient lie, but I don't think that this uh, imperialism, as I'm calling it, really relies on that at all. I think that's just to make people 
uh, not have to think about it as much. But if if you consider, like, what if so? What if you have a hundred people, and one person is really really rich, and those hundred people are really poor and supporting giving all their wealth and production toward the one person now you have one person who can afford to live outside of the bounds of that suffering maybe that person so 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 let, let's take it again into high class society you have people with a lot of money and affluence and time and they can invest in things like the arts and other things so isn't the world a better off place to have that to have the high soaring castles and silk and pretty maidens uh, than if it didn't i i don't think so i mean because the the the, <laughs> the <laughs> amount of of conscious beings who are experiencing that those things is so small and that can only do so much Mm. It, it is limited for sure it, it it's absolutely a, a small percentage of the people actually get to experience that but the difference is between that and no one getting to experience that yeah but i, I mean if no one was experiencing it then no one would miss it uh, <laughs> hmm. i don't know i, I and i yeah, I mean, I think there's a difficult line to, to walk here. Like, you can look at these things and say, what is the value of those those things? They're just decadence. They're just arbitrary, unnecessary indulgences. Or you could look at them a different way and say that these are the heights of what civilization can accomplish by by finding those extremes we show what we're capable of and increase the quality of life at least for some people yeah i mean i agree with that kind of thinking about you know like great works of art or scientific discoveries or you know great works of of literature i i feel I don't feel the same way about like nice cars or fancy houses mm. or that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, that's funny because I agree. I feel the same way whenever I see a fancy car. I kind of get a gross feeling in my gut like who spent that much time? But I think that might be kind of arbitrary because after all, isn't a fancy car a remarkable feat of engineering and design? Yeah, but it's not just, oh, here's this thing that humanity accomplished now it's done we you know we can move on to other things it's no let's make you know millions of these so a bunch of rich people can buy them and keep their in, in their garages and <laughs> uh, what's the difference there well because it's it's a huge expenditure of resources that could be doing something better yeah <laughs> hmm. <laughs> you may have a point <laughs> Yeah, but 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 I guess my question is, what makes something decadent versus uh, a, ne a necessity? 
or, or valuable? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And again, like I, I feel like this is something that that I don't see it addressed, addressed as as often as it could be within effective altruism. That's what interests me the most about it. Yeah, I don't think there's a clear answer. Or if there is, uh, I don't have it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's it's a gray area thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think, sorry to jump in. I'd love to hear no, what you were about to say, but. Um, <laughs> i think that is why it's so important to me not to be preachy and tell people how they should spend their money because i think you can cut that so many different ways how 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 are you to say that your interpretation of what is essential and what isn't is the right one and isn't it better to let everyone make their own decisions? Right, to- totally. And, and part of it is that part of the reason you need things that are a little bit more than just, you know, the bare essentials is that that's kind of what keeps you going and keeps you wanting to live more and wanting to, you know, produce more that, that helps the world. It is it is different for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there are there are certain things that are that are beyond the pale. <laughs> like you know like private jets uh-huh or you know like five million dollar houses and and that kind of thing i i completely agree and just to play devil's advocate because some people who have a lot of money out there actually think what i'm about to say they think no those things are absolute necessities because i get freedom i deserve freedom because i can achieve it and therefore by indulging in all these ridiculous things i'm exercising my freedom to do whatever i want and it's that freedom that gives me agency that makes my life worthwhile that makes any life worthwhile yeah i mean i i i do agree with the the last part of what you just said (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I part part of maybe the part of the reason I brought up cars so much is that uh, I heard Joe Rogan say the other day, like something like, uh, you know, I'm gonna buy all these nice cars because like I'm the person that gets to do that because I have all this money, so therefore I should do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and like not exactly what you just said, but similar. <laughs> just like I was really just like, what, what? <laughs> yeah. I, that's... Was he being serious or facetious? Oh no, he was being. I think he was being serious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's the mentality. Yeah, yeah, but it's like, yeah, who else is going to have these things? I'm the one who can have them. Therefore, if I don't have them, no one else will, and there will be no experience on the earth. Exactly, of someone having a fancy car. And and even though my gut reaction to that and to seeing the fancy cars and is that it's a waste of money, and that money could be spent someplace better i can't refute that i i mean i i can't say anything to disprove that yeah i mean it's it's not i don't know if it's about disproving necessarily i I just think it's it's yeah I, i i just think it's really selfish it is but i i i guess maybe joe rogan would say so what 
I'm selfish because I'm me and I get to be selfish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> something, something, Ayn Rand. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe one way we can look at what is a reasonable indulgence is happiness across different income brackets mm-hmm. how's that um we uh, I'll, I'll find the i'll find the link for for this study but i've heard that happiness can be measured uh you know a- average happiness as it relates to your income level so if you're below the poverty level you are more unhappy on average and as you go up through middle class you slowly gradually become more happy and when you get to about upper upper middle class making i don't know 60 to 200 thousand dollars per year uh or maybe i I think maybe like 100 to 200 thousand per year you peak happiness uh on average people are more happy but then when you have more money than that, your happiness starts to plummet on average. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I've seen, I think I've seen that same thing. So that might give us some meaningful insight as to how much wealth a person can have and actually derive meaningful things from that. Yeah, and maybe maybe that's part of the reason people feel the need to to compensate once they get to the super high levels of wealth because they're actually trying to account for some of the stress and unhappiness that comes with just that much that much that much wealth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so and so that's why you can have people like like the doctor in doing good better who is making two hundred thousand dollars per year and donating a hundred thousand dollars per year to charity and than living on a hundred thousand dollars a year, which is a very comfortable income. Yeah, sorry, sorry. What, what exactly was your point about him? That 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 is a moral thing to do, rather than saying no, he should donate a hundred and eighty thousand dollars a year and live on twenty thousand. I don't think you have to go there. Right, right. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, I would say anyone who's, you know, even considering this seriously and giving any any chunk regularly to charity is is you know i would say i would say it's good enough or at least that uh i mean you're obviously doing way more than than the vast majority of people in your situation are Mm -hmm. and i think that's that's enough we hope you're enjoying the episode so far thanks for taking the time to listen if you'd like to save our child from drowning in a shallow pond (laughs) (laughs) like to save our child from drowning in a shallow pond there's a few ways that you can do that effectively you can go follow us on facebook or instagram or check out our website at postwavepodcast.com or send us a nice email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com let us know what you think we always love to hear from people and uh, tell your friends about us thanks for listening thanks for listening Thank you.
yeah although i would i would just add um that part part of what would push me towards being okay with that as well is that especially if you're living in the u.s you have to account for someone in your family getting sick and and just immediately having this just massive medical bill that you're not going to be able to pay and that making that much right. and then saving it away can help offset some of that risk because there's a chance it'll you know it'll happen to someone in your family at some point and to not be prepared for that just because you know you you want to you're trying to be you know as as helpful as possible i think you do have to kind of draw a line there yeah absolutely and i think that kind of highlights too that maybe it makes more sense to begin to donate once you have reached a certain level of of affluence rather than before that yeah definitely definitely and, and will mccaskill will make the argument that you know, as long as you're above average for your country then you don't really have any reason to say that because then you're then then uh you know why can't you just do what what half the people are literally literally doing in your you know in your in your situation mm-hmm. like they're doing okay so you should be able to do that as well but if but if you're not as well off let's say you're below the poverty line eleven thousand dollars per year and uh McGaskill says that yes you are still amid the fifteen percent richest people on on the earth and even accounting for expenses and so one could take the tack that you should help people who are less well well off than you but on the other hand you're living in a extremely stressful situation with a lot of very poor elements about your life that uh like you said family members having medical expenses, yourself having medical expenses, all these ways that you can fall through the gaps in our society if you're not comfortably well off. Yeah. And so that maybe it makes more sense to address your own needs at that point. Yeah, and I definitely wouldn't agree with him that people below the poverty line should think about this stuff at all. Like, I think that's... <laughs> That's just kind of silly. Yeah. Um, I forgot. Do you remember where he said that? In the toward the beginning, uh, when he shows the that graph oh, we yeah. were talking about, I think he falls short of actually saying that they should donate. But he just, I, I, I think he says that you should consider. It. Yeah, I, mean, I, de- I definitely remember him saying that even people below the poverty line are still within the top fifteen percent, something like that. Mm-hmm. Within the U.S., I mean. So one thing I definitely wanted to ask you about all this is whether you think the idea of applying a, a scientific approach to to figuring out these questions of how to have a positive impact is a valid pursuit. Oh, yeah, that. definitely. I mean, I think he proves that uh, unquestionably in the first chapter mm-hmm. of his book. I mean, it's really, really obvious that if you want to help people, if you really want to help people, then maybe it makes more sense to think about it and and have a plan and and do so in a way that'll help the most rather than just 
flinging money at a wall and seeing what'll stick. Yeah, well, and even beyond just you know thinking about it really deeply and for a long time, being able to back it up with with like hard evidence and numbers and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. He uses the metaphor of if you were going to invest in some company and they didn't give you any feedback uh, about how their money was going to be spent, then you wouldn't invest in right. the company or or about how effective it was. Right, right. And I think I already mentioned uh, quality-adjusted life years or, or qualities, but... Yeah, can you explain yeah. that? To yeah, because this, this kind of... This concept definitely kind of blew my mind when I read this book. But uh, so a quality adjusted life here is basically a measurement of how much good a certain intervention in someone else's life will do on average. And the way uh, if we take like the intestinal worm thing, for an example, you can ask people who suffer from that. Uh, on you know on any given day if a perfect day was a 10 how how are you feeling right now and they'll give you a number and you can average out all those numbers and then uh, use that to determine how much better their life would be if they didn't have the intestinal worm problem and then there's a there's a formula to compare that to how good it would be if they literally just had uh, extra years tagged on to the end of their life right right so he has this graph here a hypothetical example so um you could on one hand improve someone's quality of life by 20 percent for 60 years of their life and so 60 years times 20 percent equals 12 that 12 qualities uh, or you could extend the life of that person who is currently at 70% health by 10 years. And so that is 10 extra years times 70% equals seven qualities. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, yeah, and so he would think effectively the better option is the first one because it's a greater number of qualities. Mm -hmm. And to me that kind of feels intuitive, like, if if you have someone's life and you can make it 20% better for 60 years like i w- i would choose that over 10 extra years of poorer health conditions yeah yeah totally i, th- I think it makes total sense so yeah I, I think it's i think it's it's pretty hard to dispute that it is good to take a a quantitative approach to this this whole thing mhm i think I think what's more debatable is is the specific things that effective altruism tends to direct people towards and kind of it does it does have a kind of a bias to be focused more on people in like the tech industry and and uh and that that sort of thing how so well i mean not necessarily not necessarily going into the tech field but um well so so like one thing that that gets promoted a lot is uh the idea of working on ai safety or kind of just existential risks in general mm. and I'll admit, I'll admit that's that's one that kind of really grabbed me when i when i looked into this uh mm. and p- part of what that is is this is, isn't just true for working on existential risk but it's but it's one of the, the big the big examples is there are a lot of problems that have a very small chance of having a huge impact mm. 
and therefore by working on them you have a you have a, a average very good chance of of helping helping people yeah and with such a large uh portfolio of people we have a large opportunity to di diversify and so it makes sense to have some people investing in high risk high reward situations right right um and part of the other i think the the thing that can make it kind of counterintuitive on the surface is, is they recommend a lot that people go into to areas that are that are neglected so like you aren't necessarily mm. going to have a high impact working on climate change or cancer research or you know becoming a doctor because so many other people already want to go into those fields and if you don't go to that field someone else will undoubtedly take your place and they might even be doing that job better than you would so you should really consider <laughs> whether you're gonna actually have a positive impact because if you're taking the place of someone who would be doing the job better then you're actually not having a, a positive impact yeah he uses the metaphor of what if someone's having a uh hearts their hearts heart stopping and uh, you can run over and do cpr but you're not really that good at it and so you injure them but you save their life but then what if there's a paramedic right there and you push the paramedic out of the way and then you go do that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, you have to be, you have to be really, really careful. So it, it does have, it does have some biases, but I think a lot of them are, are a result of things like that, that are, that might seem like biases, but they're the result of kind of, of, counterintuitive but correct uh determinations about about how these things work yeah and, and and i think that was one of the more valuable aspects of effective altruism is applying the scientific method and so you can learn from your mistakes you you see the feedback of about what's effective and what isn't mm -hmm. yeah although i will say that the one the one big bias i i feel that it has is towards uh, international and and global problems as as opposed to you know national problems even but 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 even more than that you know local and state problems just because they affect so many fewer people mm. but you know we, we do need people working on those problems because like if <laughs> you know <laughs> it's not like we can have no one working on those um yeah totally and you know, even not working on problems, but like you know, there are plenty of of really valuable occupations. You know, like being a teacher, that like, mm. uh, yeah, are are like nowhere on the map <laughs> for any of this stuff, <laughs> at least that I've yeah. seen. That are really really important. So, yeah, if if you were to cut out those sort of things, it would be kind of the equivalent of saying, look, uh you need to donate all of your money and even if you starve donate all of your uh -huh. money <laughs> even if you die it's it's okay you should donate all your money mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> just do it just everyone should everyone should <laughs> everyone should just rob a bank and then you know some percentage <laughs> of those people will succeed and then they can donate all their money <laughs> 
you know. <laughs> Plus, if everyone does it at once, there'll be a higher chance that, you know, people will succeed because they'll just be so overwhelmed. Mob the banks. <laughs> uh, we do not endorse nor encourage the actions of crim- criminal activities and violence. This, this is true. Rob the bank. <laughs> what do you think about the idea of, of earning to give in general? I think it's a valuable way to live a life, it seems to me. Yeah. Um, to make more so that you can help more. Seems very intentional. Yeah. As long as you're doing something that's that you're sure is either ethically neutral more or less or, or helping just just a little bit you know you're not working for like uh you know like an oil company or something uh-huh yeah why is that i mean that that seems true to me that it doesn't actually make sense to do ethically negative things in order to have a greater overall benefit towards good but why is that well i guess because it's uh given that there's probably some other field that's either neutral or positive that you could be making a similar amount of money in with a similar amount of work but what if there isn't what if the most money you can make by far is by doing something unethical uh well i guess we have to distinguish between unethical and uh well, it depends how it's unethical, right? Like, like stealing from a bank is unethical. But I think a lot of people would agree that, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't maybe count myself among these. But if you if you can steal from a bank <laughs> and not harm the bank and also donate the money to somewhere that needs it, then that's it might be unethical. But it's sure. I mean, you know, Robin I mean, Hood. Yeah, I mean, it's the whole would you would you steal bread to feed your family thing. Mm-hmm. But, like, what if you work for BP and you're just, like, part of the mechanism that makes that happen and lets them spill jillions of gallons of oil into the Gulf of Mexico and you're doing that so that you can earn $400,000 a year and donate $350,000 a year to effective altruism? Yeah, I mean... I. Like again, again, I don't, I don't think that's that's the worst thing you could possibly do, especially if you're donating donating it directly to to a lot of climate type stuff that's actively offsetting the 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 bad that your your job might be doing. Can't unspill the oil. <laughs> Can't unpoison the creatures and reconstitute the ecosystems that were destroyed irreparably. Yeah, that's true. But I, I think it, I think it does come back to the to the eighty thousand hours thing. Like that's a ton of time to put into something that you don't believe any you believe is act, actively harming the the world. And I think that would probably uh, dampen your motivation to move up the ranks and you know perform well and that kind of thing. Maybe. Maybe what, but what if it doesn't? Because you believe in effective altruism, altruism, and you have calculated that you can do the most good 
by making the most money doing this thing that is wrong so that you can help the most people. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you'd have to actually know that there's not a, <laughs> not a better job out there for you, which is, uh, I, get, I guess, kind of one of the root, root questions of all of this. Like, how, you know, how can you actually know that you're maximizing, even if, even if you figure out that there's this very good option, mm. how do you know that it's actually the maximum? And of course, you can never really know, but it's it's an interesting question. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is an interesting question. How can you know you're achieving your greatest potential? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it, 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 I've heard of if you're working in a field and it just seems like, you know, doors are flying open and you just keep, kind of keep getting positive feedback from people and, and it, it seems like you're just getting really lucky, that that's probably a sign that you're, it's the right place for you, you know? Boy, you're really good at sweeping these oil spills under the rug. <laughs> it's it's like you're born for this job. <laughs> You've got a knack for it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess that doesn't really apply to this, like, doing something unethical to earn money thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. But, okay, so so I, I, I'm asking these pointed questions, and, like, on a certain level, it does make sense that you could do that and yeah, you would maybe be doing the most good to the world. But I think why it doesn't work is going back to the concept of the high-risk, high-reward scenarios. And let's say you're working at BP, but maybe the, the high-reward would be if a bunch of people refused to work at BP so that they were less effectual and eventually shut down or became smaller. If, if you are complacently working as part of that system, then you were not taking that risk of being able to get that high reward. But if you refuse to work there, and then also a bunch of other people do, then you uh, could potentially get that payoff. Right. Right. Although with something as big as an oil company, I feel like uh, it's going to be the kind of thing, again, where, where if you don't do it, and if, even if 10 other people don't do it, someone's going to take those jobs. Mm -hmm. But maybe those people who take the jobs do a worse job of it. Maybe so. <laughs> Which could be a good thing or a bad thing, I guess. <laughs> do they do a worse job with the maintenance or a worse job covering up the problem yeah. so that people don't pay attention to it? Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of gray area for sure. <laughs> <laughs> fun, fun stuff. Yeah. So I, I, I'm wondering what you think the implications of all this are for a life spent as an artist or a musician? Hmm. I think that as we talked about in the first episode, right? Should there mm -hmm. be art? Um, I think that it's a very nebulous thing that such careers it's possible to have a meaningful career and and help people and 
improve the world in ways that are absolutely necessary but maybe a lot of the people who are pursuing those careers are not necessary for that payoff to happen hmm how would that be well um like considering the statistic that 85% of people who graduate with a music degree do not go on to work in the field because mm-hmm. there are not that many jobs in music available mm-hmm. so you have a lot of people pursuing that career and but for no reason right with no gain mm-hmm. it's still necessary to have some people pursuing music but maybe not as many people yeah or or maybe in a different way than we are now yeah i see what you mean and i i do agree with that you have to have a certain number of people pursue pursue something to really find the people who are who are actually going to be best best at it and have the Mm. you know have the best impact yeah that that definitely makes sense yeah and then I, i would like to say as well that something like a music teacher which i may very well be biased on this point um i feel like has a a possibility to do a great amount of good for people in a way that is very unmeasurable although you can say it seems to me likely that by teaching people music teaching them to think to have a a healthy mind um, and that that is definitely a good thing that will help the world in uncountable ways still um yeah i do i do agree that especially with with something like teaching music it's it's really hard to measure the impact and it can be kind of nebulous but and i definitely agree it's positive mm-hmm. um but I, I, the one thing we haven't really talked about, or one of the things we haven't really talked about that uh, Will McCaskill mentioned is the idea of not following your passion. And mm. I, I wonder if that, that comes into play here. Yeah, can you explain that to me? Yeah. Well, uh, it's it's kind of a meme, right? You know, do what you love, follow your passion, mm-hmm. go, go where your heart leads you. Um, but... Uh, it's not necessarily the thing you're going to be the best at, right? Even if mm. you're passionate about it, you might still get burnt out as, as I kind of discovered. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it might not have the impact that you think it's going to have. That, that That's kind of where that more analytical approach comes in. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe, maybe it has a lot to do with people misunderstanding what their passions are yeah i i definitely think that that can be true um because yeah none of none of us really know how how durable any of our interests or, or passions are going to be and how, how deeply we're going to want to stick with it even when you know the going gets tough yeah and how can you find out but to do it right 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 
yeah and that, that's something i have to keep going back to personally it's just like you know there'll be there's no other way other than to uh than to than to actually try things mm. yeah and you might you might never actually know because it's it's a really hard thing to to pin down yeah i really wish there was more out there on on the relation of the, the relationship between all this effective altruism stuff and art because there's like very little from what i've seen yeah i mean i think it's something that's just very hard to measure maybe mm -hmm. impossible one thing um in regard to being a music teacher have you ever had a student who's just like really picking it up really super fast to the point where you're kind of scared that you're not giving them the best that they could have uh i don't i don't know if i've had a student like that who who like when they started i was like oh yeah i can obviously like help you a lot it's more if i get a student who's who's more advanced when i'm like mm. oh I, I hope i can actually help this person and it's kind of always this battle of of like am i am i able to do enough mm -hmm. i feel i feel like it's very very it's almost never that it's someone who starts and I, yeah. I feel like i can you know it's it's so obvious i'm supposed to help them and you know what exactly mm -hmm. the right things to do and then they suddenly they shoot way past what i can <laughs> feel mm. like i can help with yeah, so I had a eight-year-old girl as a student who picked everything up just super, super friggin' fast and really intuitively to the point where I, I kind of got scared at the beginning of every lesson because, mm -hmm. like, shit, I have to put myself in overdrive. I have to be absolutely on top of everything to even attempt to uh, to keep up, you mm -hmm. know. To, to let them learn without Im, Im, forcing onto or, or allowing them to imprint to my own uh, cognitive shortcomings, mm -hmm. right? The, the ways that I learn that are less efficient than the ways that this little girl is learning to, to not force her into those trenches simply through proximity is it, so daunting. Yeah. Um, but but the thing I kept coming back to is I'm doing the best I can and who would be teaching her if I weren't? And since we're on a small island here on, on Martha's Vineyard, there's a, a limited number of music teachers and I, I am confident in my ability. I've had a lot of good feedback uh, pe people who have been very enthusiastic about my my teaching and I know a couple other teachers who I imagine could do a good job as well mm -hmm. but I don't have any reason to suspect that they could do a better job than I could and so that made me feel confident that even if I am giving this little girl imperfect less than the best person could give her that exists in the world i'm giving her the best that is a, uh, attainable in the local environment 
yeah, that's something I definitely struggle with living in Austin because it's, it's definitely a different situation. Mm. And yeah, I know there, are, especially since, you know, it's a town with a big university music school. It's like, I know there's tons of <laughs> just you know, crazy, amazing <laughs> piano teachers and that whole thing. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, but, but um, I mean, to, uh, to be one of those, those amazing teachers there's no other way other than to to put the get the experience and put the hours in and make the mistakes and yeah oh god i was a horrible teacher when i started out yeah same here <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad you had such a, a positive response to this yeah overall mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah I'm, cu I'm curious to see how it uh ends up percolating yeah, I mean, I think maybe where my stance is now, having having worked through, I think it's a lot of very valuable material and that I might still be trying to get on top, so to speak, so that I can start uh, helping more effectively. Mm -hmm. And until that time, I'm going to be focusing on improvements for myself so that I can get to a point where I can comfortably help people effectively. As I, yeah, I, I'm yeah, still quite sense. a bit lower than the average income for America. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I think I think for both of us, these uh, def definitely like the the donating money thing is is less of something to be concerned about, just because we're still building up our careers and still making our way to towards actually making like a livable wage yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah i think it's yeah it's, it's good to think about in terms of like life trajectory and general outlook and that kind of thing yeah i mean i've i've always had the desire to be better off and have been at least marginally working towards that <laughs> mm-hmm so that hasn't really changed that much yeah yeah maybe it's just like a new lens to look at things through. yeah maybe a little more inspiration maybe a a reason to look at uh trying harder as as being something that could actually be meaningful mm -hmm. yeah definitely yeah and it's it's i just it's nice knowing that that so many people are are thinking really hard about this and working on it and all kind of have a similar mindset about it yeah you're not all selfish pricks like me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank jesus yeah oh yeah D didn't jesus say reportedly it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven I think that's uh, <laughs> I think that's accurate. <laughs> I think that's true. Yeah. Assuming Jesus existed. Yes. It, it says that in the Bible, at least. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's metaphorically true. Well, we hope you'll join us next time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.